So tonight we'll uh, look at some questions. I have a, a, a cluster of questions been written down, so we'll sieve through and see what we can uh, uh, make out of out of your questions. Two, yes? Mm-hmm. Two of them. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure where I should stay with a feeling or sensation that is bothering me versus trying to get a more stable mind. Had to get a stable mind when you can't breathe from the pain, had to stay with pain when you're hard to stay with pain when your mind is not clear enough. So not sure where where I should stay with a feeling sensation that is bothering me versus trying to get a more stable mind. So staying with a feeling or pain, the, the actual sensation going into it, I think is what it's what's meant, rather than trying to uh, 
sort of move out and stay with the, the frame of it. It's hard to stay with the pain when your mind is not clear enough. And how can one determine if one is suffering from true exhaustion, parentheses, and a nap is in order, <laughs> rather than just, in quotes, sloth and torpor? And that's a good, yeah, so that's, uh, so two questions. So, so the, the, uh, the second one, you know, sometimes it is a good, it's not always easy to know when, um, what we're experiencing in terms of sleepiness or tiredness, especially is, um, just a result of our, our actual tiredness, exhaustion, or, uh, the, a hindrance. So, um. Sometimes it is good just to take a nap before you you meditate and, and make sure you do uh, get enough rest. Um, especially, I think, you know, when people have a meditation routine in the uh, work life, you know, when you're out in the world and not on retreat like this or not living in a monastery, then there's a lot of uh, stuff pulling us into... Um, uh, the the expense you know expending energy um, even if we don't notice it just just uh, uh, there's a lot of psychic energy it takes just to to uh, be uh, in the rushing world out there so sometimes we do just need to kind of take a ten minute nap and that can be a good thing to do before you meditate um, so that if you sit down and you find yourself just falling asleep falling asleep then you might want to try uh, resting um, first. And then, uh, of course, we probably, most of us, know that um, the hindrance of Tina Mita, sloth and torpor, the Victorian phrase used to translate it in many Theravada books, just dullness, sleepiness, tiredness, um, that's a hindrance which can come up and it has nothing necessarily to do with actually being tired. It's one of the, the nivarana, one of the five hindrances that come up generally when mara, you know, delusion, is, is um, uh, threatened in a sense because we're starting to practice. And so sometimes people get uh, restless, sometimes people get angry, sometimes people get greedy, sometimes people get full of doubt, this or that, should I follow my breath, should I follow my buddha, buddha, should I do jhana, should I do mindfulness vipassana, should I, should I, shouldn't I? And then, or just, oh, sleepiness. And uh, we were talking today about how uh, we've, all, we've all seen, pe- you know, we've, many of us have seen people um, fall into sleepiness, quite literally. I was remembering uh, stories of one of the monks in Thailand in an all-night sit, where we sit on these sort of raised platforms called asanas. And he actually, you know, many of the monks, a lot of the, the village people will be sitting there, sitting there upright, bolt straight all night long somehow. And then the monks will be up there in the asana going... And actually smacking the head sometimes on the on the um, thing, and one monk did actually fall off, did a somersault in full lotus position, and, and ended up on the floor. I didn't witness this, but I did hear about it. 
So this is something to um, generally dealing with these things, uh, including with uh, with sleepiness as a hindrance. You can do various sort of tricks, various things to to dismiss it, and yet that's a sort of temporary measure. So you know, taking a deep breath can be one way of getting through uh, sleepiness. Taking um, a shallow breath actually can be a, a way I often use is these days is uh, to breathe a little less than I feel um, is needed. And then there's this kind of feeling of panic. Of <laughs> I'm not getting enough oxygen and the heat in the body and actually the mind wakes up and uh, is right there. And it's not, it's not unhealthy, it's, it can be okay. So there's different tricks we can use, but the the main one is if we can maintain mindfulness and and awareness of what's happening is to allow ourselves to feel the feeling of dullness and sleepiness and be with that, really know sleepiness as sleepiness. Ah, this this is the mind that's dull. This is the body feeling sleepy. And notice that the awareness of sleepiness, even a, a sleepy mind, there's still the ability to be aware of a sleepy mind. And when we, when we can key into that awareness more and more, then we find a wakefulness there, which dismisses it in a way which really uproots it uh, in a deeper way than just um, sort of waking ourselves up by some other means. So, uh, so how to tell which is which? You generally on a retreat like this, when, we're, when we do, finally we have had enough sleep, it's been a few days and so on, if we're still kind of falling asleep, falling asleep, then it is the, the hindrance rather than just simply exhaustion. And then the other one, very briefly, um, if I understand it correctly, you know, in terms of a, a feeling or sensation that's bothering us, do we go? If I think that what's being asked here is, you know, how do we know when we go into it, uh, in in sort of uh, staying with it in detail and absorbing into it with our attention, or sort of just trying to. Uh, not go into it too much. Stay with a with a uh, a wider frame of reference, and uh, we can experiment with that. You know, you can just. I would say the the measure I would take is staying present. You know, staying present, and and so if if it's if the sensation is such that it's really taking me away, and uh, absorbing, overwhelming my attention, well, then I might want to. You know, I might want to try um, looking at other things, but if it's really calling my attention, well then, yes, go go right into it. But I found that um, sometimes it can be helpful to go into the sensation deeply and really investigate the qualities of it. And yet sometimes it can be helpful not to do that because it can actually just sort of make it more exaggerated when we do go deeply into it. So... I'd say be willing to experiment with 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 doing both and see what the results are and 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 what is actually helpful um, for you, rather than um, having a uh, an idea that one or the other approach is necessarily the right one.
Okay. <clears throat> and this note says, Ajahn Sujito, you talked about cultivating joy and beauty. What other ways than metta do you recommend? It's like we, in both groups that I have been seeing this afternoon, actually this came up. And um, we we looked into like how we can um, bring up the energy of of uh, joy, and not only with practicing metta, but looking into, for example, into generosity, looking into um, appreciation or gratitude. It's like when we when we look at our lives, often we dismiss we dismiss the the blessings, we dismiss the beauty that is there, and we are getting so easily stuck into what isn't good enough and what more we want. And by developing the quality the qualities of gratitude, appreciation, what we, what is there, what is available, and especially especially like being on a retreat, having the, like being in a situation where there is complete support, where where we have the space to look into what is going on internally, where we actually have the blessings also of spiritual friendship around us. And sometimes it helps me to, when I'm kind of slipping away from appreciation and when I'm going into into the mind state of nagging and not good enough and why not this and why me, like really to reflect on what situation is it actually that I'm in right now? And can I can I actually appreciate what is given, what is there? And I mean living as a nun, I'm constantly in a I mean in a field of blessing, like constantly in in a field of spiritual friendship and sometimes this kind of sometimes I'm I'm saying to myself, well, Meta, count your blessings. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of really, um, can I appreciate what is there? Can I actually see what is around myself and, and relate with joy? It's like I mentioned before also the sense of generosity. If I don't see right now beauty, if I don't see right now, um, if I'm not experiencing joy, it does help me to see maybe where I can give a little bit more, maybe just energy towards myself in terms of practice and time for the practice, but also where I can maybe support others. And 
That can be just really little gestures of support and help, or really just making the time to meet somebody and to be fully there, be fully with that person. And when I'm giving full-heartedly, when I'm present full-heartedly with somebody else, that brings joy up. That brings the feeling of, I actually appreciate being able to do this. And so, and of course, metta comes into that, and compassion, empathy, that's all part of it. But the first step is really the willingness of wanting or the willingness to let go of that little self that is always nagging and never has has enough. And I'm sure you all know that too. And it's sometimes really helpful when, when we do experience that, to turn away and to look at what else is possible at this moment. What else is there? What else is available? Where can I... Where can I give myself into? And by doing that, we are actually uh, uh, experiencing the beauty, the beauty of the practice, the beauty of friendship, spiritual friendship. And as you probably know, it's one of the things that the Buddha said, it's really one of the most important things on the path, to, to connect to be with others, to be available, to, to relate. And by doing that, we are developing also the spiritual qualities that then are also our friends. So there's the, the, the friendship, the spiritual friendship in terms of others, but also spiritual friendship in terms of the qualities that we develop by connecting, by opening up, by (coughs) being with and sharing sharing what we are what we are able to offer, what is available. I think that's what comes. question here. I believe that one of the fundamental aspects of the teaching and practice is that of non-attachment, non-self. Can you please offer your thoughts on skillful ways to recognize attachment to mind, heart, body phenomena sooner rather than later, so as to facilitate letting go and release? Well, yeah, <clears throat> I think uh, you know, in terms of experience, uh, you, know, you can't really experience a non uh, experience that, that the Buddha really recommended be bear in mind and, and place all our experience, our uh, actions, activities, perceptions, uh, ways of being 
Again, it's just that of whether we could generate suffering for ourselves and, and others or not. <laughs> you know, is it for our welfare? Is it, uh, do we get stress, suffering for ourselves? And does it generate suffering for ourselves and others? You know? So that's always the, you know, the, the one that you can rely upon. Because, uh, that's the essence of the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's direction. <laughs> So, you know, what is self? I don't know, really. Uh, but the, the, the term non-attachment, you can, there's a couple of words that that, that can refer to in, in the Pali language. One is viveka, which is just a very basic sense of giving yourself the ability to step back. Because, of course, nobody wants to suffer. But so, how come we we do it? How come we get into it? How come that happens to us? Because we're not really stepping back and looking at what's going on. Yeah. So you can say this is a this is a fundamental thing. And so you have what's called apamada or heedfulness, which means you you step back enough to really listen up and watch and bear witness to what's what's you're doing and and the cause and effect of things. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Viveka is is pretty much a you know that's what meditation that's that's the entry to meditation is Viveka which means just to kind of disengage to, uh, to the extent that you're that you're aw- more fully aware of the movements of thoughts and you can even begin to acknowledge the underpinnings of those movements whether that thought is moving in terms of greed or hatred or malice or uh, you know, what it's doing and where it's going. So you start to contemplate process. Yeah? Not just the thought, but the, the process. Like, this one's really cooking, moving along. Where does it, where does it take me to? Uh-huh. Probably nowhere conclusive. Uh, where does it take me to? So that, that viveka is the, the uh, you know, allows more scope and more uh, an over overview of our of our mind yeah and, that, and that's uh, so that that we could say that's non attachment or sometimes called disengagement or non entanglement or withdrawal or seclusion it's just that stepping back and and bearing witness and and so that really doesn't take on any kind of position of whether there's a self or not a self it's not it's just uh being more fully clear about what's going on, you know? um, and through that we, uh, you know, the mind can begin to acknowledge where it starts to uh, weld, you know, fuse into experience. It doesn't doesn't do the stepping back. It doesn't really witness the process. It just, you know, it clings. It clings. So you get the deeper level of, uh, of attachment called upadana, which is more. Um, almost uh, patho- patholo- pathology. In other words, it's something that you don't really have a lot of say over at first. It, you just notice, wow, you're really riveted on that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, there's a uh, kind of like you're pretty clear and flowing, and then dong, something sticks, and you're really stuck on it. it could be, and there are four bases: uh, sense, contact, something touches you, and you, you're really in it. You were you were kind of witnessing it, and then you're in it. You're in it, and you're mashing around at it, thrashing around at it. So that's you, there's a sense of, of uh, like of a fusing, 
or a melt, melt of the mind merges with an object. Yeah. So that's upadana, and uh, that, that takes more practice to begin to dissolve. Yeah. So what we notice is that the open space or the coolness or the witnessing kind of as uh, a blink and a blur, if you like, and, and that disappears and you just are the flow of uh, the feeling and the impressions and the appetites and the movement of that. So sense contact, another form of clinging is uh, um, clinging to uh, becoming, being, being something, identities, status, you could say very crudely, status, position, uh, I'm getting, you know, how am I getting better, am I getting worse, what do people think of me, uh, sense of, you know, a lot of clinging to, to self-imagery, and uh, that one also gets, can be almost, you know, compulsive, like somebody's talking about jealousy, you know, one of the questions about jealousy, suddenly it hits you that you feel lessened, you feel less than, and that's, uh, there's no clear assessment, it just bang, you, you suddenly feel lessened, yeah, uh, or, or, you know, you, you, you've become something. It's just you become a particular position. Uh, somebody says something and you become insulted, and you kind of welded into that, and you're thrashing around in it, feeling hurt and aggrieved. So suffering, right? Yeah, it's the loss of loss of freedom. Yeah. Uh, another form of clinging is clinging to views and opinions. You say something about. Well, I think that, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are complete idiots or something. And it's like, cling, there's a kind of view comes up. And we cling to it and then this fighting goes on. <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, Mahayana's complete trash, idiocy or something like that. And it's, cling and stuck and views. Uh, and uh, the, in that, the sense of space and freedom is lost and you feel this sense of, of, of clinging, becoming. Another one is clinging to structures and systems, systems and customs, which is to do with, say, could it be meditation techniques? Obviously, it can be um, anything we kind of do like automatic, like everybody does this, until you find that somebody doesn't do this, and what's wrong with her? Why doesn't she act this way or behave that way? And the last form of clinging is clinging to the sense of self. Yeah. Which is that oh, everything seems to be happening to me. Yeah, but you try and find who the me is. It's so so immediate. Something happens. It happens to me. Well, what? What? Where are you? <laughs> so that's not that's not examined. The, all these places are not examined. There's a moment where that quality of watchfulness is lost, and. The, uh, there's a kind of loss of that freedom and that, that witnessing and that watchfulness. And some of these, they start off seeming like they'll provide one with, with fulfillment or pleasure. So sense contact, you know. But it's, not, it's like a, not a rational movement, it's just an instinctive movement into that taste, that touch, that sound, uh, sensation or whatever. Same with a view or an opinion, as in just immediate move into it. Uh, with a feeling, this will make me more stable. You know, I'll really be firm here. Or this will make me happy, fulfilled. Uh, 
And it's not a rational thing, it's an instinctive movement to that. That takes quite some shifting because it's not, it's not conscious choice. It's like a reflex. So for that, uh, but you do begin to notice after with some re- recollection, sort of after the act, if you like, when you find yourself clung, stuck, and then disappointed, or getting into rage, or getting tenacious, or feeling yourself getting agitated because you know the conflict that it creates. Wow, that's suffering. It didn't provide me with the happiness or stability. It just made me addicted or rigid or opinionated or whatever, you know. And there's conflict with my with my fellow beings. So you get that. Oh, what happened there? And because of that, you begin to review. You know, where where is that taste or that sight? You know. So you you begin to be a bit more on guard against it. Where is that? You know. Is that piece of cake, you know, is that innately pleasurable or do I find it pleasurable? You start to contemplate and examine where does clinging arise? Is it in the the sight? Is it in the thing? Is it in the mind? No. It's in none of them. It's in the blind coming together of them. You know? It's in something acts, this Upadana acts and it sticks them all together. So sometimes we think, oh, the problem is cakes or peanut butter or something or the other. They're sinful, they're wrong, they're evil, I shouldn't have any. Or we think, the problem is me, I'm greedy, corrupted, defiled. But no, that's not true either. There's something about the coming together of of the sense object with this unfulfilled, or called ignorance, like an emptiness, like not, not a pleasant emptiness, but a vacuity. And there's something blind occurs. So you, you can't really clear upadana without clearing um, awija, ignorance, or non-seeing, or numbness, you might say, a vacuity of being. Mm-hmm. That takes some practice. You know, takes some practice. To, uh, so the important thing is to, to just always, you know, see these things as processes, Confused processes of confusion, processes of compulsion, processes of addiction and phobias that we all suffer from, rather than as self. Because we're not it all the time. You may think we're, you know, hopeless all the time, but we're not hopeless all the time. Sometimes we're hopeless. <laughs> But the fact that the hopelessness is only temporary means there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's this blind falling away and then, oh my goodness, what's happened? Oh wow, where did that go? And you sort of rock around. and you know, Because that, that's, that's the truth of the matter is that we're not actually 100% clung or clinging. If, there w- if we were, there would be no possibility for release at all. Yeah. There's no possibility for release. It's only because clinging is a condition that gets, you know, that the mind gets conditioned into through not seeing, through not knowing, through a lack of full, uh, fully awakened intelligence. The blind spots. So this is, these are, so you start to cultivate it. 
and you see process. When you begin to see process of unskillful, process that's damaging, process that's stressful, and you begin to, to acknowledge, yeah, there is that, but that's not the whole story. Yeah? That begins and ends, we, it happens to, and then it passes and we come out. Who's that then? There isn't an addicted, defiled being, <laughs> right? There is addictions and defilements, but there isn't an addicted, defiled being. Because if there was, they wouldn't be able to notice, would it? You wouldn't be able to see it if you if you if you totally were it. So that's the beginning of understanding, not self, <laughs> right? And it's and not self is not some kind of absolute wipeout. It's just saying whatever you imagine or assume or fear or dread you are, no, that's a process. But what am I? No, no, whatever you think you are, imagine you are, wonder what you are, you can, that's an object in your mind, isn't it? Like, I am a complete idiot, and that's an object and a, and a mood and an impression that arises in the mind. Hmm? If it can be witnessed as arising, passing, as, as felt and sensed, who's feeling it? Hmm? So you keep coming back to this there's experience. The experiencer cannot be named, noted, defined in any way at all. Right? So you start, I mean, the, the beauty is beginning to acknowledge that the pain and the confusion and the distress and the things that, that we feel sorrowful around are really processes, not self. Yeah. And then, of course, what can occur is, well, I'm, I've got to be better. I'm going to try and make myself better. I'm going to try and be better. Yeah. But then you begin to recognize, well, actually, that requires processes too. That requires things such as faith, which means there's something that comes up and says, I'm going to try. There's a possibility. That's called faith. That's not self. It's a faith. That's the faith in here. <laughs> right? Who has it? I don't know who has it, but there it is. Yeah. You know, it arises, and it shows the most the potent form of spiritual faith arises out of suffering and stress. That is because of that, something says, I've got to rise, I've got to come up. And there's a possibility. So as we've been talking, just you know, using faith as one of the injuries, I've mentioned the others, and all of these um, faculties and um, spiritual faculties and huge lists of them, that's why it's all these lists are there. Because it's saying, every one of the, when you see a list, it means not self, doesn't it? Because there's the faith indria, there's the um, energy indria, there's the mindfulness indria, but there's no thing called self-indria. <laughs> uh, you know? And there's joy, and there's uh, clarity, and there's mindfulness, and there's happiness, and so forth. But who is it? The question doesn't go anywhere useful. So, yeah. <coughs> so it's a very, um, the teaching is very much uh, an empirical uh, guide rather than a metaphysical 
uh, statement of, of self or not self. It's just saying empirically, you cannot, there can be no discovery, there can be no revelation of anything we could call a self. There can be revelations of many, many faculties, qualities, defiled, beautiful. It cannot be a revelation and experience of anything that we could call a substantial self. So just whenever that experience of self happens to you, just wait for the suffering. It's going to happen. (laughs) Either you're going to start experiencing it or you're going to start putting it on somebody else. But you're sure that suffering won't be far behind that one. (laughs) And the more that you recognize... Oh, oh, this is pride, this is doubt, this is uh, me feeling confident, this is, me f- this is happiness. Uh-huh, it's like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you witness it, uh, and you let it process unfold. There isn't suffering, and that's, that's the aim. Mm. Now, believe it or not, you can experience suffering or generate suffering even through positive qualities. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody's so cheerful it drives you nuts. <laughs> Because <laughs> you, know, you just like them to be quiet, and, and they just all bouncy and happy, and it's just fine. It's great, uh, really, uh, you know, because it's just so into their thing, you know. And you just, you know. But so whenever we experience some sense of, you know, something that's really true between us, it's mutual, isn't it? You know, it's listening and attending and sensing, and really, actually. You know, not self is not some weird esoteric doctrine. It's actually the way that life really works. We're all doing it. You know, it's the way it, way it works. When we share, that's not self. When we listen, that's not self. When we enjoy each other, that's not self. So any really life works um, around that, and so this. Uh, generation or this production this of self-consciousness is a particular you know, uh, confusion that occurs because we have a consciousness that can refer, it can curl back and refer because it refers we imagine it refers to somebody <laughs> some person, but it just refers yeah. and so that, that, that's the possibility for real intelligence you know, so Buddha recommended, you know, just to keep in mind, bearing in mind, even before there's any kind of real strong suffering, you know, you contemplate things like this body, which is a very strong reference point, right? Isn't it? You know, strong reference points to myself. I walk in, or this body walks in, and people say, that's Ajahn Sujitto, you know. I get up. I wake up in the morning and there's this kind of body experience. Oh, this is the me. I'm here. You know, very, very immediate self-reference, isn't it? So we said, well, you take that and really start to um, run certain tests over it, like uh, can you make it to be the way you want it to be? Nope. Get sick. Uh, you know, it has bits that you don't really want. <laughs> Uh, so you can't really make, make it the, the, anything. 
<laughs> and sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's quite nice, and other times it's just a bit of a drag, really. Um, so there it is. You know, it doesn't it isn't what you want. It doesn't feel what you want. And uh, can you make it be what you want it to be? No. Can you really govern and control it? Can you say, uh, okay, liver, stop doing this. You know, okay, bones, stop feeling anything. You know, stop sweating, will you? Will your hair stop growing? I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't go to the barber so often. You just stay stable. The thing just keeps, it's, it's autonomous, isn't it? So you, because it's autonomous and you don't have control over it, how can you call it yours? Mm-hmm. So there's that certain um, examinations that you can make around uh, autonomy, uh, control, um, and also coherence. That is, if it's self, if something is self, it's purely and completely one thing, independent from everything else, right? If it's self, it means it's just completely me, mine, and there's nothing alien in it. It's just completely mine, and it's also separate from everything else. Hmm? Yeah. Nobody else has any say in it, right? Because it's me and mine. Now, you go to a body, well... That doesn't hold up, does it? Because body cannot exist without air, food, water. Body is generated by mother and father. Yeah. So, you know, who, whose is it? It, it, it? And it's um, gets the air that goes into it. Is that mine? Yeah. Uh, food, it needs food to keep it going. Vitality. These, so it's always coming into being dependent upon a whole range of factors that are definitely not self, not mine, such as food, such as other people, such as air, you know, simple elemental things like that. Without that, it does not pertain, does not stand up for a moment. Hmm. And so then you see bodies is the simplest one that you work on and it's very, but it's still a very natural and a kind of unconscious and deeply rooted uh, connection or attachment, upadana to that, uh, a sense of assumption of it, taking it on. Uh, because that's really what life gives, gives us. That's, why can, that's what sentiency does. It's like ingrained, you know. So you really take some doing to start reflecting on it. And then we get to go through the process of witnessing the struggle we come up with, dealing with illness, dealing with body appearance, dealing with it getting, you know, not looking so nice and dealing with it aging and just day after day witnessing this thing until you gradually begin to accept the truth <laughs> of it all, you know. Uh, and, and also, you have to really, you can't really let go until you find something, the mind finds something better. You know? So we'll hang on to this thing, even as it's crumbling, and probably the, you know, most uh, uh, <coughs> terrible thing you can imagine is just still holding on to this while you're dying you know gee I don't want to be doing that really 
just hanging on to a dying body because I don't know anything else. <laughs> so that that's the that's the wake up call. This is going to die. It will not be the chances. It will not be very pleasant. <laughs> it will not be nice and clean and go here. It will be probably a bit messy and painful, and so on. So practice. <laughs> Because you don't know when it's going to happen. Practice, practice, practice. Build a foundation and refuge and dhamma that enable you to step back. And it's this way. It's this way. Yeah. It's not pleasant. It's not unpleasant. It changes. Uh, and you don't really get much out of it. So, you know, body, feeling... Feelings are not self, they come and go. You can't say just, I'm going to only have pleasant feeling today. Mm. You get painful feeling, you feel offended and insulted. How dare it happen to me? My knee, my head, this is something going wrong. No, it's not. Feeling's doing what feeling's supposed to do. Doing Feeling's duty is to feel. And it's doing its job, feeling, feeling painful. Who do you think you are saying it shouldn't be here? <laughs> It's instinctive though, isn't it? It's not fair. (laughs) Everybody's feeling pain. (laughs) There's nothing not fair about it. It's completely fair. It's totally totally democratic. (laughs) Everybody gets some. And yet, you know, so that again, it's not the feeling that's the problem. It's the sense it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. The resistance to it and the lamenting and the impatience and the all that so you just got to work with that because you know feeling painful feeling is bad enough but to generate more stress and suffering around it and yeah it's like you can't not have painful feeling it's impossible but you can cool let go of that resisting tension complaining irritation sense of oppression that can be done. And that's the Buddha said, that's possible. Uh, so we begin to sense, you know, this is what not self is about. Mm. I don't have a place here. I don't have a guaranteed place here. The only place I have is the refuge. The rest of it is just stuff coming and going, doing what it does. Mm. Now, this is, uh, you know, where teaching of not-self is a helpful remedy to help us uh, cross over from suffering and attachment. And it's the only reason why that teaching of not-self is worth bearing in mind. Bearing it in mind for any other reason is probably just going to make one confused. <laughs> not-self? What self is not-self? You know, this is, this, uh, No, it, is just, it just gets into kind of brain stuff but as a, as, a, as a practice to help guide us out of suffering and stress it's, um, it's, it's powerful and deep and useful and this is why the Buddha taught it <coughs> okay. would you like to deal with another hindrance or do you like something more joyful <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a hindrance.
So it actually says Ajahn Suchito. We dealt with that, it's not self. Please give guidance about dealing with hindrances. I'm the hindrance man, i.e. jealousy, envy, feeling it, in parentheses, not liking it, how to address it, etc., in order not to <laughs> solidify. So yes, hindrances. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he said. Because that was a really brilliant answer. <laughs> Seeing it as a process really is is the trick, and uh, if you can get to the, you know, to the point in practice where you are able to see um, the the things that you know, if I'm able to see what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling as myself as a phenomena, as a process, as a, as a mind state or an emotion, a physical um, experience, and I don't identify with it, then that's really the, the way out. Um, so anything we can do to, to um, remember, to f- first recognize and, and familiarize ourselves with that perspective and, and remember it is, is most valuable. Um, because the other things we do, like I was calling them sort of tricks before with the um, you know, ways to wake ourselves up when we're tired, uh, they're valuable because we do want to, you know, it, it, the kind of unskillful mind states that, that all of us experience can take us into um, harm. They can, you know, carry us to places where we harm ourselves and harm others. And for that reason, then, we do want to... Um, not just simply wait until we're in a profound place of seeing not-self to practice with them, but we'd sometimes we just have to simply um, avoid, you know, if we, if we know that um, so-and-so makes us um, murderously angry when we see them these days and we just can't deal with it on any more of a skillful, more profound level, then maybe the best thing to do is to avoid meeting that person this week until we were in a better place. So recognizing our own limitations is part of it. Um, and then bringing mindfulness, bringing awareness to the actual experience in a way uh, where we're not going to get overwhelmed by it. So already we're in a good place if we've recognized the hindrance as a hindrance. Because mostly you know, what we're doing and what the most people in the world are doing are just, you know, becoming anger when we're angry and becoming jealous when we're jealous. And uh, when we feel uh, greed, we become a greedy person. And when we start to practice with these things and recognize them as hindrances, it's, 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 it gives us a f- already a level of freedom uh, from them because we're we're aware ah this is a phenomenon that I am experiencing and of course the 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 great freedom that's available to us if we deepen the practice is that we start to really uh, question the whole I you know, I am experiencing this I am jealous I am a person who has the hindrance of jealousy I am a doubtful person 
I am, I am, I am. And so the, that, that really is the heart of the, the practice for all of these things. Um, you know, sometimes we can get perspective on the hindrances like that we're experiencing, say for instance, jealousy by um, experimenting, you know, countering it with bringing to mind its opposite, you know. Um, mudita would be the uh, classic uh, um, uh, skillful quality of the heart, you know, the, the sort of um, sympathetic or empathetic joy for the happiness of another person. And we can bring that to mind and, and see what happens. I think it's a mistake, uh, at least for myself, it's a mistake to just try to, you know, think that I can make myself feel mudita if I'm feeling jealous, because that's just idealism. It's fooling myself. It's trying to 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 push away what I'm actually feeling and and uh, artificially. Um, uh, uh, create something else. But if I bring it up and I'm honest with myself, you know, there, there's, we have many aspects to our, to our um, emotional life. And there is a, a big part of our heart which will open genuinely, you know, for, for someone. And so if we make an exercise of bringing up the opposite of mudita, we see what happens. And maybe there will be some you know, genuine shift that happens. Or maybe, more likely, there'll be some kind of, uh, it'll be brought into relief at least, be able to see, oh, yeah, this is, um, this is painful. This is unskillful. This is painful. And that's, for me, the, 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 the kind of key to um, finding the movement away from getting caught by the hindrances is seeing the, the pain that they create, you know, feeling the, the fire of it. And, uh, you know, because I know in my mind, oh, I shouldn't be jealous and jealousy causes harm and I know it all uh, in my head. But actually feeling it in, in the heart, feeling it in the body, in the body-mind, however we want to put this, but feeling the pain of it and, and not judging one way or another, not saying I should or I shouldn't feel it, but just noticing, ah, oh, this is painful to feel this way. And maintaining mindfulness, that, you know, that, that gives a message to the system at a very um, fundamental level, which teaches, you know, it teaches us. It's how we learn to move away. It's like when you, if you have your hand in the fire and you don't know why you're hot, and then you see that it's because I have my hand in the fire, then you naturally want to take your hand out of the fire. You don't have to learn about it in, in books or, 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 or tell it to yourself. You don't want to be burned anymore. And then, the, then also, you know, recognizing those times when we don't feel the hindrances um, that we struggle with. So if jealousy or envy is the example in this case, but it could be any of the hindrances, ill will or greed or doubt. Uh, and dullness and restlessness, all of the various um, many expressions that the kilesas, the uh, the uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, those basic forces, will um, manifest in whatever we're.
feeling, we're not always feeling those things. And so just making a practice of noticing when I'm not feeling doubtful, when I'm not feeling jealous, you know, and, 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 and noticing that it feels, if that feels good. There's a coolness. There's a sort of relief there that we're, we're not going to notice unless we put our attention to it. That also helps. Um, and then in the end, really seeing, you know, seeing jealousy as jealousy, seeing it as a, as, as a phenomenon, as a process. As Ajahn Sita was just so beautifully saying, you know, that it is not me, it's not myself, it's like the weather. It's okay that the conditions come together for jealousy to arise, and so here it is. And I don't need to blame myself for having, you know, oh dear, looking, I created the karma for this, and so I'm experiencing it, it's my fault, and here I am again. But it's just, it is what it is right now, and it's here because of conditions, and they've come together. And just like I don't take it personally, if, if uh, you know, yesterday was a beautiful spring day, and today there's snow and cold, and or the gray comes in and it's raining and stormy. I don't take it personally. You just know, okay, this isn't as pleasant as a sunny spring weather, um, but it's not me. It's just the weather. Then the kind of internal weather system we have as well, our own weather patterns, storm patterns, and uh, you know when the spring comes and when it's winter. These things also we don't have to take as personally. They're they're processes. They're they they're they're supported by conditions. And we we have a, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to be overwhelmed by them because we ha- we can take refuge, in 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 awareness, and we don't have to take it personally because it really isn't personal, at all. We spend much of our lay lives at work. The goals, aspirations, motivations, rewards in the common deed, common, some looks like common something, workplace are most typically not aligned with Buddhist principles. Short of leaving lay life and responsibilities, what is one to do? <laughs> Go to the monastery. <laughs> um, of course, I mean, of course not. Everybody wants to do, do that. Um, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I'm just coming back from spending a week out in lay life with my family and just seeing like everything that's going on out there i mean i'm i'm having i'm not having been involved with with work situations outside 
for more than 20 years, so I, I'm not the best person <laughs> to really talk about the challenges that come up with that. But what I also know from monastic life is that um, it's like, how can we, how can we stay centered in the hustle and bustle of everything that is going on? It's like um, when when you have a task or when you when you like say in your work situation, you have to deal with with like say with other people who you are not necessarily at ease with, who you find it maybe difficult to relate to. And kind of, I think the practice does help us to, mm, to find a way of opening up, of taking, taking on those challenges without... Um, without getting carried away by it, but and um, and of course, yes, we do get carried away from time to time, but not always. And I think what is important is to bring back and to to come back to what is actually going on right now. It's like what. What is what is unfolding? What am I relating to? And I can see for myself quite often that when I'm not doing that step, I'm going into patterns of relating or patterns of reactiveness that doesn't help. That doesn't help in terms of of really relating, relating to what is happening right now, what is happening right in front of my eyes. And so coming back to as much as possible to the present moment, and I think both Ajans just mentioned before, and that is something I have been discovering myself over this last, especially over these last few years. Can I take situations not personal. Just what creates a lot of struggle and a lot of difficulties is when I'm identifying with what is happening around myself. When I'm identifying with kind of challenges or problems, um, like by identifying, by taking things personal, I solidify myself in a certain position. And I think, like, it it does help me to see when I'm doing it or when I've done it, to make that step back out of it and saying, well, actually, I don't need to take these things personal. It's It's happening, but it's not happening because of me or because, um, like, this person is not acting in that way because he or she wants to hurt me. It's just, it's happening. And if I don't take things so 
personal, if I don't identify so strongly with what I'm experiencing, like say, in work situations, and that relates also to monastic life, because we do also work, and and we relate to others. And like, I think you, like the in the question is that point of aspiration, like the aspirations are coming in in terms of, for me coming back to the present moment when I when I know. I'm going into a very difficult situation. I can prepare myself in terms of try to be open, try to be mindful, try to make the space to really meet what is there instead of coming into situations where I where I come from very fixed point of views. Yeah, it's like so. I'm not going into the situation with the attitude of "Oh, I know it all," and it's always the same. <coughs> Excuse me. It's always the same, and this always happens. But with the attitude of, "Okay, let's see what is possible. Can I, can I meet really what is in front of me? Can I?" Can I take it in? Can I relate to that with a heart that is maybe a little bit more open than usually? And I find it, especially when I encounter challenges and when I encounter difficult situations, it does help me to know, and monastic life has taught me that a lot, because I'm living together with so many different people from so many different directions, from so many different cultures. So what I see as, of course, that is right and that is normal, the other person doesn't necessarily do that. They have, they have completely different experiences. So when we when we go into that into those situations or into life with I know it all and I know that I'm right, we are down for suffering. But if we can take in that this is the way I'm seeing things and there's there's some reason behind it why I'm seeing it that way. I don't need to deny that. But I have to have a certain attitude of openness, or like I try at least to bring that in, for seeing that others who might not agree with me have a very different point of view. And that can be in very simple situations, and that can be also happening in very complex situations. But really, Taking in that my point of view is just one possibility of seeing this situation. And for others, what they see might be very different because of their point of view, because of the differences. And, and to move away from right and wrong, and that person is difficult or that person 
makes my life difficult to how can I embrace, how can I incorporate this different view into my life? How can I learn to relate to that without getting lost into um, a position that is that is kind of locked in a certain corner? I'm not quite sure if that really relates to the question, but this is what comes up for me, that what I can see are the difficulties that I hear when people out of lay life come and talk to me, or what I also experience in monastic life. When you live together with other people, you do encounter differences, (laughs) and, and you do encounter opinions, and it's not always, we don't always agree, but I also think we don't have to. You know, it's, it's okay that there are differences. And when we are open enough, like when the mind is open enough to take that in, it can actually be an enrichment. I mean, I, I have seen in, like, in, like, discussions, in, in, meetings in monastic life that like I think my point of view is the best of dealing with this situation and it comes more and more to the point of wait a minute maybe that's not (laughs) maybe if I'm not digging in my heels I can actually see much better what somebody else is seeing, what somebody else has to offer into this situation. This is what comes. So I'll take the last question for this evening. You indicated that the path to awakening unfolds naturally, developmentally, on its own, and that we shouldn't pursue special mind states, jhanas, etc. If so, can we simply trust the natural unfolding? Mm. Well, mm. I wouldn't entirely... If I've given that impression, I wouldn't entirely support that um, entirely. It's a matter of phrasing, I think. Uh, you know, <coughs> practice is in accordance with dhamma. Yeah, so that's one of the, uh, the faculties of a stream enter is they understand that practice is in accordance with dhamma. Uh, so Dhamma can be translated as natural, yeah, because there's a naturalness to it. But the uh, the uh, um, proviso is, of course, that one is practicing in accordance with Dhamma. <laughs> you know, one is not f- so that some that the, what what is natural Dhamma isn't always uh, where one's habits incline. So you've got to be on aware of what is Dhamma. You know what is the principles of Dhamma, and stay in tra- in on track with that. Right? 
So it's natural, but we're not always natural. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> you know, the, what, it's, it, there's a certain uh, chaotic quality in that uh, it's like we get, the mind gets occluded, gets blinded, we blur, we, we, lose the, we lose the topic, we go off topic, we slide, uh, uh, we grab, or grabbing arises. These, these, these old karmic habits come up and you, grabbing takes place, grasping takes place, passion comes up, aversion comes up, you know, so then we, we, there's a blinding and we're rattled and sometimes we just lose the sense of Dhamma. Yeah. We're back into habits and compulsions. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, there is a natural unfolding provided that one is in uh, is attuned and always aligned to the process of dhamma. That's that's the proviso. Mm. Yeah. And the fact is that I imagine that for most of us that's that's not always the case. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of pursuing mind states I don't think you, you really because the mind states are either there or not you can't pursue something that isn't there um, but the more that one practices in accordance with Dhamma there's a kind of feedback loop that occurs with that that is because we're in process Dhamma is a process it's a feedback process so if there is the arising of faith, there'll be the arising of energy. Yeah. If there is the arising of energy, and, the, as, and that is skillfully handled, there'll be the arising of vigor and application. If there is the arising of vigor and application, then there will be the arising of you know, focus and, and interest. Therefore, one will bear things in mind. Therefore, be, bearing things in mind, being mindful, one will begin to develop. Wisdom will arise. Yeah? And collectedness will arise. So there's a there's a process there. Yeah, one factor leads to another. One factor gives rise and implements and augments and makes possible another one. Yeah, it's not exactly me- mechanical, but it's organic. There's an organic process that can take place. And any part of that process, what can come in is that clinging can come in or or, or, or um, defilements can come in and, and knock, knock us off, knock the mind off balance. So you've got to be aware and on the lookout for that. That's why there are all these kind of lists and faculties and things that are there to give, keep giving us like um, you know pointers, flags. There's a path that definitely has flags on it. Yeah, wait a minute, what's happened to the the faith, and then the hindrances are all flagged, you know, so you get to notice, that's that one, it's known, it's described, this is this pitfall, if this happening, step back, contemplate, bring, get back into the flow of Dhamma, then it will, it will, it will, it will process in that way, yeah, and it processes, and, and, uh, you know, without going to anything too, um, you know, Refined, what we notice, like was statistically, over the field of dhamma practice. You know, you can get very much into your own where you are on that. But you look overall. We look at a hundred people. Are they getting more violent or less violent? They're getting less violent. You know. Yeah. Are they getting more greedy or less greedy? They're getting less greedy. 
are they getting more compassionate or less compassionate? They're getting more compassionate. It's not like self, who's better, but there's a process going on here. Are they developing more patience or less patience? They're getting more patient. <laughs> yeah. There's a process going on here. It's a natural process that's, you know, overall, you look at it overall, there is a, a very discernible track of process that's going on for each and every one of us. Yeah. But of course, when we come to our microcosm and we take it as self, we think, well, I'm not this, I'm not that, I've got to be this, I've got to be that, you know. Uh, and therefore, we lose, when we take even the path as self, we take the practice as self, we take the hindrances as self, we take the enlightenment factors as self, we're not practicing in terms of Dhamma anymore. <laughs> so that, that hindrance can, any, any point, that hindrance, that basic view can knock, knock us off balance. Because if you take anything as self, you lose the faith. You lose the, you're no longer taking refuge in triple gem. You lost the basic, you're off track again. And you get somewhere, but you don't, the, the, the feedback loops then start to not keep doing it. You get to a certain point and that's the end because you've grabbed it or grabbing has taken place. So you get people who have experienced jhana, you know, beautiful states, wonderful state, but something's taken that as self. Therefore, the process of enlightenment stops. That's as far as they get. Yeah. I am this, I am that, I've got this, I've got that. I did this, I've that, now I'm one of these. That's the end of that. That's the end of the path. <laughs> Because you, you, once you've gone out of that that process of feedback loops, by then the feedback loop can't continue, and what cuts it is grasping, is you know, because grasping is a final finalizing quality. It says this is where I am, this is where I am. That's where you're going to get stuck exactly, <laughs> and it won't go any further. You know, in order for it to continue, you have to keep allowing it, allowing it. Be humble, be modest, let it pass, let it come and go. And then that, that's the feedback loop, that's the essential quality of faith. We trust. Yeah. We trust. Yeah. We also recognize, we appreciate the beauties that have come to us, the goodness that's come to us. We're glad and we're honored by it. We don't feel I deserved it. We feel we're gladdened by that. If, we, if the mind does stop and go quiet, we feel grateful for that. We're not saying I've attained something. We say grateful. Thank you, Buddha. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> it's like you know, you, you appreciate the process, and then the process will keep going, and it will continue. So, I don't say pursue, but I do say these these pointers. They are in line. You know, they're, they're, the path is flagged as. Very simply speaking, sila, samadhi, banya. It's always, you can see it in more detail. You know, um, the Eightfold Path, mindfulness, samadhi, jhanas, and so forth. Yeah? And so that's the way it will go. It will move that way. And who knows how fast? And who knows what lumpy terrain we have to cross? Who knows how many times uh, negative karma will, will blur and throw us off track, throw us out of Dhamma? So you can't say... I will now do a retreat and get jhana. You know, 
because you don't know what's what's under the hood. <laughs> what's going to come out of left field? What's going to, you know, we're in a chaotic situation. Uh, but you can say, my faith is such that I, that I will aspire, I will put forth effort, I will be mindful, I will bear in mind, I will struggle, I will work with the hindrances, I will keep that practice going. And then fruitions, yeah, results, let them come as they do. But there's, you know, you you notice that just over time, and you can't get this in a, a one retreat, or you know, it comes over time in accordance with dharma, in accordance with karma. Over time, people are getting calmer, getting getting uh, clearer. People are getting more honest. That's the way it goes. People are starting to calm down. You know, states of deep attention is occurring. Deep attention is occurring, and that's these are the signs you look out for. And when I started, what a five minute sitting still was like, wow, you know, chalk it up on the wall. I sat still for I never sat still for five minutes before. As, you know, in fact, I managed to sit still for ten minutes. That was like, write it up on the wall. I couldn't believe how you know wonderful meditator I was. Got ten minutes going, and then. Uh, Big push, I managed to do 10 minutes of sitting, 10 minutes of walking, 10, I did, got a whole hour of meditation without going crazy. <laughs> well, you know, manage, only manageably crazy anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, you say it's not, you know, then you think, I didn't attain anything, I haven't got anything going, I'm not this, that, and the other. Well, you know, look where you are. <laughs> look, where, look where it's taking you. Yeah. So, you don't really necessarily have to pursue, but you, it's good to review. You can't tell what's ahead, but you can look back, right? And you can feel, yeah, there's confidence. And how did that happen? Did it happen? It happened, you know, through trial and error, through struggling, through working, and finally happened. Because when you touch into these factors, you know, when you don't give up on yourself, when you do sustain that quality of, of application, results are bound to accrue. And uh, jhana is one of them. Mm. You know, and it really it comes, uh, I would say, you know, through two principles that you begin to, to see as uh, conducive and become more available. One is the principle of simplifying, simplifying, simplifying 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 even perception like just be now you don't have to know that much so your cognitive faculties get simpler they get more uh, just outline you know just that and so in a way you the cognitive aspects of mind begin to quiet down you don't need all the detail <laughs> so that bit calms down and then you're just saying just there there. The other factor that's important is enjoyment. You really deepen your ability to appreciate and enjoy. Because contentment, gratitude, whatever comes to you, you know, but it is that sense of both simplifying and enjoying, simplifying and enjoying, simplifying and enjoying, you know. And you begin to touch into that feedback loop. That's the feedback loop of samadhi. And that becomes possible through mindfulness. And mindfulness becomes possible through, you know, it's all linked up, yeah.
but so you look at what particular uh, and some of these faculties once you even name them you know oh yeah I don't need to keep being so complicated oh, yeah. Ah, yeah. so that it does help to have these suggestions and reminders that's why we do retreats suggestors and reminders because you're getting a lot of suggestions and reminders that are not Dhamma <laughs> yeah that's the problem yeah. is that yeah you know there is a the, the natural unfolding but we're not always in nature we're not always in the natural state yeah so you're getting all this very confused input from the social world yeah so you've got to then this means you've got to really keep bearing in mind the dhamma and practices in accordance with dhamma and it takes its time in accordance with Dhamma. You can't put a stopwatch on it, but you'll see results. So, you know, it definitely helps when you begin to also put into that, you know, what it takes to keep the feedback loop going is do remember, do assess, do recall the goodness uh, of your practice. It's so easy to remember the disappointments and the failures and the things that disturb me do recollect and recall the beauty and the goodness of your practice because that is the faith and that's the essential one um, if we lose that it's all gone really <laughs> okay that's enough talking for the evening and um, if you like to freshen up for a few moments and then we'll conclude the evening with a sitting.